Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Oh, it's my Our pleasure. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, so today on the show, I welcome Dave Asprey. Dave is affectionately recognized as the father of biohacking. He is the founder of Bulletproof and the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Superhuman and Fast This Way. He's also the host of the Biohacking Conference, which will produce its seventh iteration on September 17th through 19th, 2021 in Orlando, Florida. Dave is widely known for confidently predicting that he will live to 180 years old, and our discussion is a broad analysis of how. We discuss the principal causes of death, the prevalence of diabetes in the United States, and how it leads to other comorbidities. We explore inflammation, its sources, and its relationship to aging. We talk about different approaches to fasting, as well as its spiritual dimensions. And Dave elaborates on the role of the mitochondria in human longevity and the nature of ketosis and autophagy. And of course, we can't help but poke the bear of COVID. So I found this conversation to be fascinating and not without some humor. And I hope you enjoy the banter as well. So without further impediment, Here's my conversation with Dave Asprey. Dave Asprey. Wow. Welcome to the Commune Podcast, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, we share so many mutual connections. It sort of boggles uh, the laws of probability that that we've never met. So uh, lucky me and, and lucky listener that you're well, here now, today. Now we, now we get to meet. So yeah. the best way to meet someone is a podcast because well, you get to ask all the questions you want to ask, right? Yeah. And it certainly promotes uh, presence and mindfulness because there's no other way to where to be. There's nothing to look at. There's no notifications, uh, et cetera. So I enjoy You don't it. have a bunch of cheerleaders behind the camera? You got up well, your game. Right. Don't reveal all my secrets all <laughs> right at the beginning. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, why do you think I have such an upbeat, happy demeanor? <laughs> it must be the pom-poms. <laughs> um, so I'm, there's, I have 30 pages of notes. There's myriad topics uh, that I want to um, excavate with you from human longevity, the reasons why we age, all the different components of biohacking, including fasting, and particularly the spiritual dimensions of fasting, which I Gosh. thought were really unique. Uh, and I'm also very eager to to hear what you've got up your sleeve for the seventh annual biohacking conference that is fast approaching. I believe it's seven, September 17th or 19th in Orlando. And can you believe it's seven years, right? <laughs> I mean, wow. That's yeah, it should, something. should be nine if it wasn't for the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I know uh, having run a lot of conferences and festivals, I, I know how the the rings uh, appear around the trunk of the tree quite suddenly there. Yeah. Um, so I'll start here. Now, I've heard you confidently claim in many places, both orally and in your writing, that you'll live to 180 years old. And upon a, a, just a small bit of research, I found that the oldest person on record was the infamous Jean Carmont. I'm not a great French speaker, but I'll do her justice where I can. She was from Arles, France, and died in 1997 at the ripe age of 122. And it's interesting that no one has surpassed her since then. Uh, of course, here you are um, uh, in the running, but you've got some time to go. But I'll just uh, frame it with a, some historical contextual background. So in 1900, life expectancy hovered around 48 more or less. And by 2000, we had collectively increased it in the United States to about 76 and a half. And that increase is obviously influenced by a number of factors, including our mm. ability to deal with infectious disease, particularly among children that would bring that average down. But strangely, over the past couple of years, there's actually been a decrease in life expectancy uh, in the United States. And that trend seems to predate COVID. So something's going on. And uh, so I would say, if you're going to make it to 180, and all of us are going to have to deal with what's in front of us from an environmental and public health perspective, what are the primary killers or challenges that yeah. we're going to have to evade that seem to be so prevalent here in our modern society? We've got to make sure that if we talk about average life expectancy, infant mortality, okay, when <laughs> when babies don't die, which they used to very, very frequently, um, then, oh, the average length of life goes up dramatically. But the human lifespan, the, the longer human lifespans hasn't changed that much. So if you made it through middle age and no one knifed you and you made it through childhood and you didn't get sick, well, then, okay, you had a good chance of making it into your 60s or 70s. And it's crept up from there. But when we look at all this, now the first step to living to at least 180, which by the way, it's only 50% better than our current best. And we have 100 years to do 50% better. It's not that big of a goal from that perspective. But you got to not die is the first step. So what are the four things most likely to kill us? And, and this is in my book, Superhuman, about anti-aging. Yeah. It is cardiovascular disease, cancer, and it's diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. And diabetes is the precursor to the other three. So don't get diabetes. 
and your chances of dying goes down an awful lot. Indeed it does. I'm glad you brought diabetes to the fore because I'd like to concentrate there for a moment because it's a word that gets bandied about quite a lot and there's different kinds of diabetes. And even though it's highly prevalent, I believe, and you can correct me and please do, that there are about 10% of the US population is, is diabetic. Uh, we're talking about type 2 diabetes, what used to be called adult onset, but no longer. Uh, and then we have a whole pre-diabetic community that seems to be like 80 or 100 million, right? So maybe you could it's address... It's more like 80% the Jesus pre-diabetic. Christ. It, it really, <laughs> no. When you look at metabolic dysfunction, that's, an, that's a real number. And there is no difference between pre-diabetes and diabetes other than marketing. Right. It, it is mm. the same spectrum. You're on the spectrum and you're accelerating in the wrong direction if you have this. And I had this in my, my mid-20s. I was diagnosed with prediabetes. Funny, I don't have that anymore. It is a reversible condition. right? So if 80% of us have a hard time with, and I'm going to break diabetes down so it's really straightforward. Yes. Every day, you combine about 30 pounds of air and some amount of food or other fat from your body if you're fasting to make electricity. And if you suck at making electricity from air and food, you have diabetes. And it could be because you have an autoimmune thing that's affecting your pancreas so you don't make enough insulin, that'd be type one. And type two, well, there's many little subcategories there, but basically something interfered with your metabolism. So now you have too much sugar in your blood, your insulin levels keep going higher and higher and your body doesn't respond, usually because your cells can't do it because something's wrong with the way you built your cells. And part of living forever is let's make cells that work because when you're good at taking air and food and making electricity, you have enough electricity to repair the system. But if there's not enough electricity, you won't repair the system because you're too busy trying to stay alive. That's why diabetes causes heart disease, cancer, and Alzheimer's disease. It's a precursor to those because the body just gives up on fixing itself and staying young because it didn't have enough power. Mm, yeah. That's really helpful. And I mean, could you maybe just give us like a little breakdown of what, what diabetes is, how your body, what, what your body generally uses for energy, and then what seems to be like, like the role of the pancreas, you know, what is uh, insulin resistance? Because I think this sets a, a, a good amount of background for then once we for our conversations around fasting and ketosis and all this uh, other things that I hope to get into. Sure. Your body can burn three different things for energy and surprisingly you can get some energy directly from sunlight but not more than 10% of your total which is exceptionally unusual but it's possible just to put that out there. Yes, I reference the studies in my book on that if you don't believe me there is real science there. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> like it, it's not <laughs> enough to not enough to make you a breatharian. So, what are the three things we can burn? One of them is we can burn amino acids, which are protein building blocks, and we don't generally rely on those for most of our energy. And doing that usually costs us something. Using protein as an energy source creates a lot of ammonia and other bad things in the body. So, a high protein, low fat diet isn't good for you. Never has been. In fact, you can't even get that in nature without a lot of work. You know, in, in the old days, how many hunter gatherers ate the chicken breast and threw away the rest of the chicken? We don't do that, right? 
I'll just eat the egg white and not the yolk. What? No, that's crazy pants. So then if we could burn protein, but it's not good for us, what we primarily burn is carbohydrates. We can turn protein into carbs, which is biologically expensive, or we can just eat carbs, sugar or starch, essentially. And this is going to sound weird. Different proteins do different things to you. Different carbs do different things to you. And then we can also burn uh, fat. And different fats have profoundly different effects on your biology. And so this whole conversation, oh, we can burn these three things, they're buckets for simpletons. And to just underline this, my favorite plant-based protein is sarin, the nerve gas. This was used in the Tokyo subway attacks. It kills people. Okay, it's a plant-based protein. And you could use you know, vegan logic to say, therefore, all plant-based proteins kill you. That's not true. But different proteins do different things. By the way, uh, animal protein, spider venom. There you go. They'll all kill you too. So it's okay to be selective about your proteins and just recognize it's not about 20 grams of protein. It's 20 grams of what protein that did what to your aging. That's why I like things like collagen. And then when we get into what is insulin resistance, if your body is not metabolically flexible, it doesn't know how to burn fat. And if you don't usually tell it there is a use case for burning fat, it'll turn off the enzymes that allows you to easily burn fat for energy. And that's one of the things that can make you more reliant on glucose. And then what happens, you start eating things where like bad seed oils, omega-6 fats like canola, corn, and soybeans. And what those do is they make your cell membranes less flexible, and therefore your body is less able to express an insulin receptor through them. And what that means is that, okay, you have some sugar floating around and your body secreted insulin, but your cells couldn't really latch onto that insulin and then pull glucose into the cells. So your blood sugar levels went higher, insulin levels were higher. You fix this by teaching the body to burn fat and by don't eat bad fats that cause your cell membranes to break. And when you do those two things, the way I talk about in, in fast this way, it doesn't take that long. It takes a, you know, a few months to restore most of it. Uh, so that you can now burn fat, but to rebuild your cells so that they're actually made of stable fats, about 50% of the fat in your body gets replaced over the course of two years. So if tomorrow you started eating grass-fed butter and stopped eating liquid seed oils, it's going to take you about four years before you're going, I really like my brain. I really like how I feel because it takes that long to replace 75% of your fats with non-industrial seed oils. Mm. So... If diabetes is one of the contributors towards heart disease, what does the gut bacteria and microbiome, what is that relationship between those, that system and heart disease? Because I think there's a lot of fallacies and confusion around the nature of heart disease. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I have been a long-standing warrior for the fact that cholesterol is not bad for you and that it is, in fact, a building block for all of your hormones, your sex hormones and your stress hormones and your brain, and that you die without it and people with low cholesterol are at higher risk of a bunch of diseases. So then you say, okay, but what about the lining of your arteries? Haven't you heard that if you eat butter, it's going to clog your arteries well, now we have the ability to look at isotopes and to look at very, very fine details in fats. 
And two studies so far looking at the type of fat and the source of fat in our arteries, when you have plaque in your arteries, all of the fat comes from bacterial synthesis in the gut. Hmm. What that means is if you have the wrong stuff growing in your gut, your chances of heart disease go up dramatically. So, And so this touches on the emerging field of, of, of the microbiome and and of populating a healthy uh, gut bacteria. Can you maybe spend a moment sort of differentiating between the bacterias in, in the gut, that those that seem to be positive, those that seem to be deleterious uh, in the way that you just described? Sure. And there are tens of thousands of types of bacteria or species of bacteria that can live in your gut. And one of the companies that I've been advising for years called Viome just added 10,000 new species to the database of bacteria. <laughs> and that was just from looking at a quarter million people's poop. So there's a lot we don't know. There's a little asterisk there at the beginning of my answer. But what we do know is that there is bacteriodetes and firmicutes are these two big classes of bacteria. And when I weighed 300 pounds, I very likely had more of the bacteria that you would have when you're fat, which is the Firmicutes family. Like you need them, but you don't want too much so that there was an imbalance there. And studies since then have shown that in mice and humans, you can take gut bacteria from thin people, put them in fat people, and the fat people get thin. And you can take bacteria from fat people, put them in thin people, the thin people get fat. And one of the things that's interesting is you cannot buy bacteriodetes as a supplement but you can buy Firmicutes as a supplement. You can only grow Bacteriodetes by giving it the food it wants, which is called polyphenols, the colored compounds that are found in brightly colored foods. Number one source of polyphenols, coffee in the American diet. So it's so what you're doing when you drink Bulletproof coffee. And <laughs> for the few people who haven't heard of Bulletproof, it's you know grass-fed butter, MCT oil, and... Uh, and coffee. Uh, and, it, and it turns out I'm actually launching a new Dave Asprey coffee that has some other differentiators in it as well that I'm, I'm pretty excited about. But that original idea behind Bulletproof Coffee was fat, any sort of fat, will suppress gut bacteria. And then if at the same time you feed polyphenols in the coffee, then what's going to grow after you suppress everything? Well, what's going to grow is the thin person bacteria. And that's something that you want to do. I also, for people who are fasting and people looking to fix their, their bacteria in their guts, uh, even if you're on keto, is to take prebiotic fiber. And this is a, usually comes from the sap of trees. It does not raise your blood sugar, but it feeds the good guys. I quadrupled the number of gut bacteria species that I have in my gut by adding this to my coffee, and it doesn't break a fast. And that was part of my research on superhuman, because as you age, the number of species and type of species of bacteria in your gut goes down. You can predict someone's age, plus or minus three years, by the number and type of bacteria they have. So I just gave myself a young person's poop. I feel very proud about that. <laughs> have you done any of the fecal transplant? Have you ever, well, you might not need it, but what, would, what do you think about that I practice just, in I sell my I sell my poop on eBay, and that's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to the highest bidder. Um, well, yeah, I and have, I think it. I've thought about it years ago. I was desperate. I, I've taken pig whipworm eggs. I've taken rat 
uh, larvae, like rat tapeworm larvae. These are larger things to help fix the gut. I had terrible gut problems because on antibiotics for 15 years as a kid and a teenager. And my gut is fixed, so I don't think I need uh, I need any of that. Uh, yeah. So well, I will I say. I will say you are you are the farthest thing away from an armchair philosopher. You are, you know, so uh, um, fecal transplant notwithstanding, you have uh, immersed yourself uh, quite personally and courageously into all of these practices and techniques and modalities, some of which are quite, you know, new or haven't been able to get, you know, proper funding for, you know, controlled clinical trials and whatnot. So you are on the on the, you are what they call the bleeding edge or the tip of the spear for so much right. of this stuff. And I really do appreciate how much you put yourself personally out there. Well, th- uh, thank you. And yeah. it, it, you got to look at the philosophy behind it though, Jeff, we know what happens if you eat fast food and processed food. Um, you spend the last 25 years of your life, basically sitting on a couch moaning a lot. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's okay that's what i'm up against am i willing to try something weird to not go down that path i am because i experienced the diseases of aging before i was 30 i had arthritis when i was 14 the pre-diabetes cognitive dysfunction um, all of that stuff i'm not going back so i'm willing to take a risk to avoid a certainty yeah yes that is actually a great way to think about it because, of course, we all have hundreds of examples from our own life that we can draw from. You know, my father, who just is recovering from colon cancer, he's going to be 80. And I'm like, Dad, 80 is nothing. You know, um, the president is 80, you know, for God's sake. Um, and, uh, and even just to kind of harken back briefly to some things about life expectancy that we were talking about earlier, I believe if you make it to 80 the chances of you making it to 90 are about, you know, 50%. So, you know, we get caught, we get, uh, our instincts are deceived sometimes, our intuitions deceived by some of that data around that average life expectancy uh, and whatnot. Uh, I teach my kids that average is normal <laughs> and normal is pretty crappy. Right. So, and what and what gets deemed as normal, those goalposts continue to move, right? In, yeah. in, a, in a direction that seems almost ridiculous. And we we get this weird thing that says, well, you know, the average person um, who's eighty has a uh, you know a fifty percent chance of making it to ninety. Therefore, I have a fifty percent chance of making it. But if you say, let's compare averages, how many comorbidities do you have at seventy or at eighty, right? Well, if you have none and the average is 4.7, you don't have to worry about the average because none of us is the average person. And this is why you never let epidemiologists and health statisticians make any policy ever because they treat everyone the same and we're not the same. Mm. Well, that's prescient um, for our time and maybe we'll poke at that bear absolutely <laughs> later um let's talk because we we talked a bit about heart disease and a bit about diabetes let's talk about cancer for a moment and uh and maybe you could um elaborate on the conditions and circumstances that lead often to cancer and here perhaps you can address uh some of these concepts that seem baffling to a lot of people like mitochondrial uh 
degeneration or free radicals and um, and antioxidants and and how sure. those things play a role in our in our greater health as it specifically as it pertains to cancer. We used to think that cancer was genetic, and that has been disproven ninety five percent of the time. So about 5%, maybe 3% of cancers do appear to be genetic in origin, things like uh, BRCA uh, for, for breast cancer. Um, but the rest of it, it's lifestyle. And the number one cause of cancer is mitochondrial dysfunction. Your cells got so bad at turning air and food into energy that now they went anaerobic instead of aerobic. And this is, this is not new. There's something called the Warburg effect that's been around for a long time. We just didn't have the imaging tools to understand what's going on with cancer. And there is a fundamental gut bacteria, even oral bacteria, vaginal bacteria, skin bacteria link with cancer as well. So cancer is what we would call an epigenetic disease, a disease of the environment causing switches to be thrown in our genetics that then, cause, that then can contribute to cancer. And when you fix mitochondrial function, magically, oftentimes cancer shrinks or goes away even without cancer drugs. And if you do that in addition to cancer drugs, your survivability rate, even for formerly deadly cancers, uh, it goes away and suddenly things are much better than you'd think they were. Can you explain the primary role of the mitochondria to sure. folks who are unaware of it? All right. Mitochondria... Two billion years ago, uh, there were ancient bacteria and they were floating in the ocean. And then there was some other kind of cell that we think is us. And we don't know exactly what it was. There's three candidate species. They're all kind of parasites, whatever. And then our story is that we captured the mitochondria and made them live inside our cells so that they could be our mobile power plants. Now, the mitochondria story is we found a floating Petri dish. We moved in, we took over, and we never let go. All of my research. And we're talking like monthly science bestseller list, all of my research. So thousands of papers points me to the, the idea that mitochondria are the puppet masters of our cells. We like to say they're the power plants or the batteries. They're actually manufacturing plants. They're environmental sensors. They figure out what's going on around them and they make hormones, they make proteins, they make signaling molecules, and they make electricity. Hmm. And they do that to keep the Petri dish alive. And they think they're in charge and their operating system is what makes you do all the things you wish you didn't do. It, okay. This, I want to take us off road for a second and I will, <laughs> but I, I just want to stay with this thread for just a moment. Um, what contributes primarily to mitochondrial dysfunction or degeneration and what contributes to healthy functioning mitochondria having an environment where nothing ever changes will contribute to weak mitochondria they are lazy and when i say lazy i mean they conserve energy biologically and they're constantly pruning themselves there's way more of them than there are cells in your body or even bacteria in your gut so they're sitting there going do i really need to have you know 1500 of me in this cell no Nothing ever happens in here. Let's just pare it down. Do I have to replace the old ones with young ones? No, there's never any stress on the system. So what keeps them young is sometimes there's no food. Oh, that's weird. 
the mitochondria that can't handle 12 hours of that food, let's kill them and grow new young ones, right? But if they don't get a signal to clean themselves up, of course, they're just going to be fat and happy. Same as you and me with donuts and no, you know, <laughs> nothing to do. Live in grandma's basement, right? So without this idea of hormesis, which yep. is like minor stressors, it sounds like. Correct. Um, mitochondria will get will become couch potato ish yes. um, if we're going to play that <laughs> analogy out, and uh, and th do they then contribute to the production of free radicals? Explain that piece to me because I'm not sure I, I actually have that bridge in my brain completely. Free radicals aren't a bad thing; they're actually signaling molecules that we need. So as mitochondria burn glucose or proteins or fats. Um, and air, they make free radicals, and they have very cool systems that turn off uh, and neutralize free radicals. So your mitochondria make glutathione, which is one of them. They make something called SOD. And so they can use the free radical, and if they get enough free radicals, then they're strong. And if they're in an environment with no free radicals, then they're weak. So that's good. The problem is that if you have chronic unending stress, the free radical level goes up and then the mitochondria doesn't have enough antioxidant capacity to neutralize them. And then you get the systemic inflammation. Uh, so it, it is a nuanced system with a lot of feedback that's built in. And it's actually very elegant when you think about it. So your job is to say, you know what, sometimes cells, you're going to get a lot of free radicals. It's called exercise. <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, and it goes ah, and then it says, "Okay, I'm going to upregulate my antioxidants." Even things like ozone therapy, which I'm a big proponent of, especially for the current um, cold and flu season. Uh, what ozone does is it acts as a signaling molecule to tell the mitochondria, "Get rid of the weak ones. Everyone else, get ready to make antioxidants," and then you get a stronger immune system as a response. Hmm. So, brief detour here. I recently read this Salk Institute study. It was pretty fascinating, where they were looking at this, the, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, okay? And mm -hmm. they, they, they mapped that genome, and then here, here it is. And they injected sort of within its envelope, if you will, you know, made like, like a lipid envelope, basically. They injected like a dummy virus. So basically something that was non-pathogenic to humans. Uh, or, and they tested this particular then on, I'm not sure if it was on rats or mice or whatever it was. And they noticed that the spike protein itself was detrimental to the mitochondria. So we've heard a lot about um, that COVID-19 is not just a respiratory um, disease, but it seems to be also vascular disease, that it has yeah. some ability to infect blood vessels such that it's showing up in, in it gets in our vascular system, shows up in other organs. Um, I wonder, like, have you been probing and poking at this, at, at COVID-19 and its impact kind of beyond degrading respiratory function, but looking at like what what might there be there at a, at a cellular level or a mitochondrial level that might also be playing into the scene? I know a couple of people who think that, that it may actually be infecting mitochondria. 
but I haven't seen strong studies of that because even studying mitochondria is still relatively esoteric in in just in the universe. Although at the Salk Institute, I have looked at mitochondria under powerful microscopes with PhD researchers. So there are people who are doing that, but I, I couldn't tell you that I've, you know, I've seen a study about that, but I've seen interesting hypothesis for it. In terms of whether it's a vascular disease, it seems painfully obvious that it is, especially given all the clotting. And what my hope at the beginning of the pandemic was, oh, this is great. We're finally going to use the tools of functional medicine, the ones that saved my life and helped yeah. me lose 100 pounds, in order to help survivable rates. And yes, we can treat it with uh, whatever drugs, but I know how to build resilient humans. That's what I do. And I didn't used to be resilient, and I am now. So how do we increase resilience? But it, it turns out, magically, you can get a donut or a soda uh, in exchange for a treatment and right now, the evidence says that if you actually got COVID and survived, and not everyone does, but most people do, you have 13 times more protection than a vaccinated person. Um, so I'm right now saying, look, if we're going to give away our freedoms for, for some sort of social credit score called a vaccine passport, you might include people who've already had COVID as being immune. But apparently, that's not the direction things are going. Yeah, I mean it's obviously complicated how how long does how long do you retain the antibodies with natural infection? How long does one I mean clearly there does seem to be some sort of waning immunity with the vaccines themselves. Um and then to what degree are like T and B cell lymphocyte memory uh, um reliable uh against new variants and all these things. And it's it's it gets to be honest you know, quite complicated, certainly above my pay grade. But I think my um, frustration, if there is one, might be similar to yours, which is like, yeah, I believe in microbiology and I believe in science and I believe in health and I believe in the body's ability to, to heal itself. And we should be having this... You know, I did get, I'll just come out here. I've never talked about it before, but I did get vaccinated. It was a long road for me to make that decision. Mm -hmm. um, it was like I took in a tremendous amount of information and obvious and 10 times more opinion than information. Yeah. I also, um, you know, contracted COVID in 2020. Um, I did get an antibody test and I didn't have any um, antibodies where I tested negative for the antibody test. And I've been watching Delta and I've balanced, you know, a hundred different things and decided, okay, you know, I'm going to get the vaccine, but I'm certainly not like a, some rabid proselytizer for it. I'm just think that was the best decision for me and my family, given where I am right now. And, you know, without with avoiding sort of some of the more, political <laughs> honeypots um that yeah. we can which is maybe impossible it, it's uh, kind of sad because uh, like you said there's a lot we don't know and just to admit there's a lot we don't know some people get angry and they, they feel afraid but we're still learning and that's okay and yeah. what we do in situations where we don't know is we all make our best judgment and then the ones who are wrong we have a greater risk of dying and that's it's called evolution <laughs> and that's just how it's always been 
But yeah. when you say, I'm so afraid that even though there's a lot we don't know, I'm going to pretend like we know everything and I'm going to make everyone do what I think is right. That is a mistake from a scientific perspective, which is why mandating anything, including circumcision, is something that I'm against. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, science at its best in its method is versatile and yeah. flexible and probably humble. And questions our, itself. Yeah. Right. And, um, and I think, you know, the more that we can promote sane, thoughtful, respectful, well-researched conversations, I mean, and avoid stuff that's quite specious and that yeah. obviously the, the information ecosystem is quite toxic. So discerning between, you know, what is well-researched and thoughtful, who's the arbiter of that? I don't really know, but this is one of the greatest epistemological challenges of our time, right? Is to be able to like engage in the conversations that are worth engaging with such that the, that ideas marketplace produces the best ideas while also taking, you know, the notion that like, pedophilic lizard people are in some basement plotting like a depopulation scheme and you know like trying to leave that one off to the side and this is this is very difficult um to to wade through and yeah um, it is um, it's, it, it's up to us to do it though because um one of the weapons of um propaganda is you say oh anyone who doesn't do what i say believes in lizard people and what you find is, is that people who are uh, I'm going to say, still deciding to get vaccinated, they fall in two buckets, PhD scientists and relatively poor people. That's right. <laughs> and so like, that doesn't bother me. Uh, and I'm, I, what does bother me, though, is by forcing people who have legitimate health reasons to do something, even though we don't know everything yet, that, that is a mistake as a biohacker, as an anti-aging guy. Um, I uh, I would not like it if, say, the government decided that you should take antibiotics every week to make sure you don't get some kind of bacterial infection, because there's unintended consequences, and we see that in our feedlot animals, where we give them antibiotics every week, and we've driven all these things. So there there should be individual variation uh, in our societal decisions based on, well, how average are you? Do you have chronic autoimmunity and all? So I'm, I'm hopeful that part of the anti-aging discussion um, does involve this idea that, you know what, you're genetically different than this person. And sometimes we don't know stuff for your genetics, but if you know this doesn't work, I'm not going to force you to eat a plant-based diet because it didn't work for you. You tried it. And I'm not going to force you to do what works for the average person because you might not be average and that's okay. That's right. That's actually one of the things in my notes here that I wrote down that I most admire about you is that you're very non-dogmatic, even about the things that you espouse. Except um, for kale. You just have to hate kale. As long as you can hate kale. We... Can you wear a kale shirt? <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I discuss this with my wife at great length. It's like, how do we deliver personalized medicine at scale? Um, and that is, a, that is a, a challenge. You know, when it's easier to sort of make a decision sort of around utilitarian principles of like, well, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Okay, you know, I get it. But, but that is a very, often a very cold, non-humanitarian approach to health, well-being, yeah. citizenry, et cetera. So. And that whole, that whole philosophical, uh, or that whole philosophical argument 
it has problems because in the US, the few have guns by design. So let's not mess with the few unless there's a damn good reason, right? And otherwise, it just gets messy. And why why would we make that kind of a world? I I don't I don't feel like it's necessary. But and here's something though for anti aging that I want to be really clear about. One of the things that is likely to save a good number of our listeners from cancer over the next five to ten years is custom. 3D printed mRNA cancer vaccines for the specific type of cancer you have. Hmm. I work with the companies who are working on this kind of stuff. So I'm hugely in favor of an anti-cancer mRNA vaccine for myself if I have cancer that is a clear and present danger. So it like like vaccines are part of anti-aging. Give me a vaccine for diabetes. Holy crap. We can study that for seven years and then we can look at it and sign me up. Right. So, so these are an important way we're going to control our immune systems. We just don't need to put the cart before the horse. Right. So let's talk specifically about some of the age expanding techniques uh, and biohacking ideas and practices and modalities that you've been on the front lines on. And, and specifically, let's start with fasting. Since, sure. you know, I know you wrote a, a, another book. My God, I don't know where you have the time to do all this. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, specifically about fasting, different approaches to fasting. Um, but why don't we just start with kind of top line? Uh, what is the best, what are the different ways, what are the most appropriate ideal ways to fast? And why do it? At the biohacking conference in uh, in Florida on September 17th, we're going to have several speakers on fasting because it turns out fasting is one of the cheapest, as in it costs less than making breakfast. <laughs> um, one of the <laughs> right. cheapest and broad spectrum anti-aging biohacking technologies that you can do. The, the difficult thing though is different people on different days need different amounts of fasting. and one of the reasons I wrote Fast This Way, uh, my book on fasting, is there were some missing pieces. Because the average fasting book is really easy to write. In fact, I wrote it in 2011, the, the Bulletproof Diet. It had intermittent fasting and there is some other stuff, right? The, the problem is step one, don't eat for a while. Step two, it's good for you. Here's some, some research and then you have a book. The world doesn't need that book, but there is a spiritual fast. And then there's a metabolic or a working fast for high performance. And there are fasting hacks because most people who were 300 pounds like I was, and you're going to get hangry and hypoglybitchy and you're not going to make it through your workday. And if you do, you'll get fired. <laughs> At least I would have fired myself. Uh, so how do you get going on fasting without having that hunger that might be beneficial in a spiritual fast, but takes you off your game if you have two kids running around and you're trying to focus on Zoom? and you're not eating for the first time in your adult life. Uh, so there's, there's a lot going on around, okay, how long do I fast? Is it the same for men and women? There's a whole chapter in the book about that. So I'm bringing in speakers to talk about fasting for women versus for men. But the consensus is that at least three days a week for at least 12 hours of not eating is a really good thing for almost everyone. And the almost, even for a nursing mother, three times a week, 12 hours a day, 
is probably okay, unless she's really hungry, in which case she should eat breakfast. And maybe you're going to do that and you'll say, oh, well, I think maybe I should do it five days a week because I feel so good. This is a very common thing. And there's something, and I mentioned, you know, the plant-based thing. I was a raw vegan for quite a while, a devout one with blenders and, and sprouters and all that kind of crap that makes you not well. And I've also gone down the, the keto thing, very early book on the keto diet was a bulletproof diet, but it's not a keto diet. It's a cyclical keto diet where you go in, you go out, you go in, you go out. So you don't mess up your gut bacteria. You don't uh, break your mitochondria. But in all those experiments, I've fallen into the keto trap. I've fallen into the vegan trap and I've fallen into the fasting trap. And they're all the same thing. And this is a basic human nature that if something is good, more must be better. For instance, now we're looking at booster vaccines, even though most of the world hasn't been vaccinated even once, because if something is good, more must be better. Don't look at the data. We just know more is better. So should you be plant-based for a month to turn on something called autophagy to allow your body to clean up? Hell yeah, go on a low protein diet for a month. You know, Maybe don't eat the inflammatory plants, but that's up to you. But with fasting, what I'm finding is that there is a trap which is I felt so good, I started doing it more and more and more. And women will hit the wall before men do. And usually it takes four to six weeks of over fasting. And the first one is, huh, I slept, but I don't feel like I slept. So your sleep quality goes down even though you might still be sleeping. And then the second thing is irregular cycles. And the third thing is hair thinning, hair loss. Mm -hmm. And with guys, it takes usually another two, four weeks. So give it six, eight, 10 weeks and our sleep quality goes away. And then we wake up without a kickstand. And then <laughs> that's the nicest way I could think of to say that. Uh, and then after that, hair thinning. I'll never so, think about riding a bike again the same way. <laughs> just ride a racing bike without a kickstand. You'll be fine. Fair enough. I think I want a kickstand to be honest. Um, <laughs> so that, but that, that's where it goes, right? It is okay. We can over fast and, now, here's the weird thing. How many hours of fasting would be right for you? Well, Jeff, how did you sleep last night? Did you lift heavy? Did you have a lot of sex? Did you insert you know, all sorts of other things that could be good or could be bad stressors? And if you're highly stressed and you're jet lagged and you exercise or you're recovering from a cold or whatever, maybe it's a 12-hour fast. But if you're saying, I feel great, I want to push it, maybe it's an 18-hour fast or maybe you'll just fast for two or three days. But there is no one answer for any one person, which is why the book is called Fast This Way. And we're using data now, and that's part of the biohacking conference um, in Florida, uh, to talk about, all right, what do we know works and how do you tune it for you? Yeah. Can you take a minute just to do some kind of fasting 101 for folks that sure. aren't familiar with it? And maybe you could talk about the relationship between fasting and ketosis and maybe help us with some definitional work around ketosis, because I know earlier we spoke about how the blood, how the body often use, uses glucose for energy, but there's sure. alternatives there. And uh, yeah, if you could dive into that, that'd be helpful. Ketosis is, people have heard of the keto diet now, at least they've heard of it, but might not know what it is. When the body has either no energy inputs or it has zero carbohydrate and very low protein, it only has fat, it says, hmm, I guess I'm going to have to rewire myself to burn fat for energy. And for most people, when your metabolism has not been trained to do this regularly, 
it takes a couple days of feeling like oh, low blood sugar, I'm tired, I got a headache. And then all of a sudden, it's the best day that you've had in a long time. Because when your body is burning fat for energy, fat has more calories than sugar, right? Well, calories, that's not what makes you fat. Calories are a measure of energy. So if you're burning something that has more energy in it, might the neurons in your brain be exceptionally happy? Well, it turns out they are. In studies, they will use fat or ketosis or ketones, which are the fat-burning bodies, before they'll burn glucose, even if it's present. Hmm. And so there's a case that says go on a keto diet, don't eat any fat, or sorry, don't eat any protein or don't eat any carbs, or maybe just don't eat anything like you would in a fast, and then your body will start to produce these fat-burning molecules, these ketones, and then you feel amazing. But to turn it on should be very fast in a healthy human, but most of us aren't healthy. Hmm. The the typical person who uses the stuff I write about in Fast This Way, even if you're new to fasting, if you're going to do a 12-hour fast, that sounds, what? 12 hours without food, I would die, except you're asleep for eight of them. So stop eating at, say, 6 o'clock. An early dinner helps you sleep better, and no snacks after that. Go to bed at 10. You've already fasted for four hours. Sleep for eight hours. You wake up at 6 a.m., you just did a 12-hour fast. You don't have to eat at 6 a.m., Maybe you're just going to wait till 8 a.m. for breakfast. You went 14 hours. Good for you. And now at 14 hours, you could say, I'm going to eat. Or you could say, I'm going to do one of the fasting hacks, which increase ketosis. And Bulletproof coffee is something I'm very well known for. We're probably pushing a half a billion cups of it served over the past 10 years. It's, it's a wow. big thing. And there's a kind of oil called MCT oil. And now I'm no longer associated with Bulletproof, so I'm about to launch my own coffee that has some other stuff in it. But there are some incredible things that happen when you put MCT oil in your food because it's a fat that cannot be stored as fat. It turns into ketones in the body. So even if your metabolism doesn't know how to do that, you put it in your coffee, you drink it, and then all of a sudden your brain turns on and you ignore food. And there's many mechanisms for why you hormonally ignore food when you do it, but it's pretty cool. You just end up feeling uh, really, really good. And the body says, all I had to do was burn fat. Therefore, I will become better at burning fat. And then at dinner, you might have some rice or some sweet potatoes or some carbs. And the body says, I guess I should be able to burn carbs. And all of a sudden now, you sleep better because you had carbs and I, you were not on a keto diet where all I eat is bacon and cream cheese forever. I'm not talking about being a keto bro. You didn't have to fast for six days in a cave the way I did for the book or four days in a cave. Um, what you're doing though, is you're saying I went long enough for the body to know I'd better be strong. And that was it. It's like going for a walk versus running a marathon every day. You don't have to run the marathon every day, but you do have to move. Hmm. You mentioned this briefly, um, but I, I want to come back to it just quickly for some more for definition. What is autophagy? Autophagy is a really important uh, anti-aging, I'm going to call it technology. But autophagy is, uh, here's a good analogy. Las Vegas used to have light bulbs instead of LEDs everywhere. And there were teams of guys who'd go around and they would spot the dim bulbs or the burned out bulbs. And they'd put up a ladder, they'd unscrew the dim bulb and screw in a new one. Right? And they would do this all the time. You wouldn't see them, but they're always doing it. Well, autophagy is the body's process of finding weak mitochondria and killing them 
recycling them and building young new ones. It's giving, making sure all your bulbs are able to burn at full strength. And is there a relationship between intermittent fasting and primed autophagy? Intermittent fasting is one of the things that will turn on that cellular renewal process. And it's interesting because the body, when you eat, it takes its enzyme capacity and it uses it to digest food. Well, when there's no food present, it still has enzyme capacity. It says, what should I do with this enzyme capacity since I have no steak to work on? It says, I think I'll work on autophagy. So even a shorter intermittent fast works, but if you were to say go 24 hours or 36 hours without food, you can really ramp up autophagy to the point that it's a primary anti-aging and anti-cancer thing to do that doesn't cost anything. And I've got to offer fastthisway.com. I've taught 70,000 people how to fast for free in the fasting challenge that's on there. So that is just a gift. And there's a huge community of people who will share with this with you. My, me and my team uh, monitor the questions there. So fastthisway.com. You don't have to buy anything. It's just, let me teach you two weeks of every kind of fast, including one for autophagy. Nice. Yeah. So intermittent fasting spurs on primed autophagy. Autophagy cleans out degenerated mitochondria, healthy and cells too. It, and it's cells. not just there's also something called mitophagy, but autophagy generally yeah. it gets rid of zombie cells. One of the things in my book on aging, which is whole cells right. that are dysfunctional as well as mitochondria that are dysfunctional. So there's two flavors of autophagy to be right. Tactical. And this is absolutely applicable for anti-aging but also specifically for cancer yes so um so one of the delineations that you made in um in your fasting book is between hunger and craving and i, I loved the way that you addressed this could, could you do that oh, yeah. here for us i did not know there was a difference uh, when i was a young obese person and the way I describe it is, if you feel like you're going to die, if you don't eat something, that's a craving. And I remember ending a meeting once sometime in my mid 20s, where I, I it was my meeting, I, I called it and there was eight or 10 people in there. And it was 1145. And I said, guys, I'm sorry, I'm going to end the meeting early. If I don't eat something right now, I'm going to kill and eat one of you. Like I, I cannot pay attention. I have to go. And I walked out of the room. Okay, that's a craving. Now, what is hunger? Hunger is a feeling like, you know what? I guess I could eat like sometime in the next couple hours, it'd be good to eat. But if I don't, I'll be fine. And I had never experienced that in my entire life because it's, man, it's, it's 1130. I'm starving. I can't wait to eat. And, and then the food takes over your mind and you think about it. It doesn't do that anymore. I, mm. I have not had a feeling like that in so long where now I just experience hunger and the cravings are gone because it turns out you cause your own cravings. And maybe you have an issue like I did when I decided to go fast in a cave years ago, because I knew that when I was lonely, I would eat. And that's an emotional hunger, but it's still not a craving. A craving is more intense than that. And your cravings are caused by what you ate in your last meal, or maybe something you're exposed to environmentally. So if you eat something like a kale salad, and then a half hour later, you're really hungry and you want sugar, well, that's your body dealing with toxins from kale. Right. So if you eat, you should not want to eat again for four or five hours. And if you do want to eat, you ate the wrong stuff or you didn't eat enough. And it's hmm. really straightforward. So if there's a craving, it's your fault. Got it. Would you categorize craving 
as more psychological and hunger perhaps as more biochemical. Is that fair? I don't think that is fair hmm. because you can have biological cravings. In fact, one of the things that people in the restaurant industry have figured out, if you add MSG to your restaurant food, unlabeled MSG, because it doesn't have to be called that by the FDA, if it's 74% MSG, you can call it something else. You will sell 30% more on the average ticket size. Because when people get MSG, it causes a biological craving for sugar. They buy another soda or another drink and they buy dessert. So if mm. you go to a restaurant and all of a sudden afterwards you have a sugar craving, that's a biologically induced craving when the synapses in your brain are saying, I'm overloaded with glutamate. What can I do? I need sugar to, to turn on the pumping mechanism to do this. And if I don't get sugar, I'm going to get a migraine or I'm going to clench my teeth and get a headache and yell at people and all the other stuff that MSG makes you do. So hmm. there is a biological craving, but there, there, the mental thing, the stories in your head that say, you know, I will, I will experience love if I have chocolate, you'll actually get some of the neurochemicals of love from chocolate. Uh, but you want to be able to have a body and a mind that says I am safe and I am loved whether or not I had chocolate, but I like chocolate. So I ate some. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned before we got on, I'm a bit of a fledgling Buddhist and the Buddha, one of his great revelations as he was sitting under the Bodhi tree in Nepal was that one of the sources of human suffering is this penchant to craving. Yes. Uh, he used a word called Trishna, which is a Sanskrit for, for thirst, that we're in a constant state of dissatisfaction because we're always craving or thirsting for external agents that we perceive will assuage our discontents. And that, that could be consumptive or it could be a fancy new car, it could be drugs, it could be dopamine hits on Instagram, et cetera. And according to the Buddha, at least, um, that this search outward only yields ephemeral results, right? Um, fleeting results and keeps us in a constant state of craving. And then once we've actually achieved something, we cling on to it <laughs> because we're afraid to lose it. And, um, and that, you know, through meditation, at least in, in Buddhism, um, looking inward, this is a, a more reliable, long-lasting way to find serenity, contentment, to assuage our discontent. So I bring this up because you talk about fasting in a spiritual context often, which I think is fascinating, which is in some ways letting go of the craving or almost just witnessing it as phenomena arising and subsiding in consciousness moment to moment without assigning it any valence or giving it any power or any fixation or any identification. So can you expound a little yeah. bit on this for me? So I, I have traveled to Nepal and Tibet and I have studied meditation uh, with the masters from Tibetan and Chinese lineages and even some of the shamanic work from South America. And, and you look at this, there's a fasting practice in every lineage out there. Um, it's, it's just a part of what you do. And it's usually a spiritual fasting practice where they're saying, okay, you've got to face that. 
And in Buddhism, you have the realm of the hungry ghosts, which is what you described. It's it's one of right. the, the hells, the realms of hell. And there are more than seven of them. My favorite hell, by the way, is the hell of burrs and achus. <laughs> um, but the hungry ghosts, they eat, but they're never satisfied. And what we've done is we we have this where, like you said, you're consumptive. You have to buy the new car, the new whatever else, dopamine hits. But if you have bad nutritional advice and you're eating corn oil and omega-6 oils and frankly, raw kale and lots of processed carbohydrates, you actually physically create the hungry ghost realm where you have a swollen belly, where you're constantly hungry and you eat stuff and it doesn't fill you up because you ate the wrong stuff. So you can replicate that inner thing they're talking about in your outer behavior. And what I have found through my neuroscience company called 40 Years of Zen, where we take you through in about five days and do a very intense personal development work with computers to help you get there to replace decades of meditation work. And what I find there is that people can't do the work if they don't have the electricity. So there's a chef and a special diet and supplements to make the energy levels high enough to do their personal development work. So what I teach people is if you'd like to do the work around craving and around spiritual fasting before the spiritual fast, don't have pizza and beer because it will make your cravings so intense that you won't achieve what you could achieve if you were kind of running a clean biology. So it takes extra energy to do personal development work, including working on cravings. So let's minimize the biological cravings so that you can focus on the emotional and psychological cravings and realize, oh, I'm hungry now because I'm lonely, as I write about in the book, versus I'm hungry now because I ate a packet of kale chips. <laughs> and can you apply the idea of intermittent fasting to other things outside of food? Yes. In fact, there's a chapter in Fast This Way on all the different types of fasts that you can do. One of my favorite ones is fasting from air. People go, what? You'll die. No, actually, you won't. You have about three minutes of fasting from air you can do before you get some damage. And breath work is something that's I've made a part of biohacking since I came up with the term. And so, yeah, learning how to breathe out and hold your lungs empty. Someone who's new to yoga, you're going to feel like you're going to die with two seconds of, of your lungs held empty. But if you do a breathwork practice, suddenly you go, oh, I can go 20 seconds with my lungs empty and it's okay. It, that, and it's okay. That's what we're seeking to have. It's called equanimity. And in, <laughs> in Buddhist teachings and in 40 Years of Zen, uh, which has some Buddhist inspirations behind it, there's step one is empathy for others and yourself, right? That's nice, but it's not necessarily the highest level state. Uh, the next one would be compassion. Right? right. So empathy is I feel others' pain. Compassion is I can witness their pain and want them to to recover, but not feel the pain. But the highest level state is equanimity, which is where I can have compassion, and empathy, but I don't feel like I'm going to die, even if there's a hurricane around me, and I can remain calm and grounded and of service. So we're all working on our equanimity through these fasting practices. Yeah, and it's interesting the qualities that begin to perfume or punctuate your life when you can exist in the absence of need. Mm -hmm. I think about this all the time. I mean, even in a relationship, you know, if you're not thrusting 
the requirements of the ego on your partner, you know, where, where actually you don't need them per se to be whole, um, then you are more capable of loving because loving becomes something that's given and not something that's taken. Um, so I, I find that um, fasting, I, I actually find it quite concomitant with meditation um, because I can witness sensations of hunger, of craving, mm. just arise and just wave at them, just see them <laughs> for what they are without getting like carried away by them. Um, and, uh, and you can apply this to kind of myriad components of your life. And um, I find that it, 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 exactly what you're talking about, it, it, um, it creates a more equanimous existence. Um, it works really, really well when you're doing a spiritual fast. And one of the reasons I, I put a lot of the things in fast this way that I did, and the reason that it's a big focus for the biohacking conference, um, September 17th, is, is that if you are going to sit down and have a focused, intense day, and you're experiencing those cravings, it's going to be very difficult to achieve what you want to do. So there has to be a way to say, how do I do a performance fast where I just wanted to be in the zone? I wanted all the energy that would have gone into digestion to go into thinking. And I just mm -hmm. want to be present and, and I want to be able to just go in that go mode. And there is a way to do that. And if you only do that and you never do a spiritual fast where you sit down and go, God, where's that craving coming from? Am I going to die? Then you don't, you don't get all the benefits of fasting. And when we talked earlier, other types of fast, you can fast from air. You can also fast from what I call weasel words. I fast from the word need. My family and I, we do not use the word need unless you're actually going to die without it, which is almost never true. So we don't need to go to the store. We want to go to the store, right? Because you could have the groceries delivered, right? The need was false. And you can, in fact, the hardest fast of all, the one that I end the book with, um, is actually fasting from hate. Just yeah. go two or four hours without thinking a bad thought about yourself or others or other things and see if you can do it. And you're going to find, I had no idea that that voice in my head did that so often. And it does unless it's trained and fasting can be a part of the training. Yeah. Well, fasting from hate needs to be the contagion. Did you just <laughs> the, say need? Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> rewind. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Post-production work. Um, should be a, a societal contagion because yeah. boy you don't have to turn your head too far to see quite a, a lot of vitriol being tossed about these days let's talk about a couple other um components of of anti-aging and overall well-being and perhaps these are addressed um at the conference coming up um let's talk about light and what is beneficial light and potentially what is detrimental light? Sure. Light is a nutrient for the body. It is a signal. And we talk about these ancient bacteria. Well, in the morning, there was sunrise light, red and orange. And then in the middle of the day, there's full spectrum light and heat coming down from above. And then there's a lot of food because those old bacteria ate algae and the algae were exploding because of the sunshine. And then as it starts to get cooler, you get more red light, sunset time, and then 
At night, it's cold and they drop down and regenerate. This has been the cycle of life for 2 billion years. Now, if you have a quadrillion or so ancient bacteria all trying to work together to keep the Petri dish that is you alive, they need a central timing clock so that they know that they're all doing the right thing at the right time. And the number one thing that sets the timing of all of this distributed network in your body is light. So light is a nutrient. And the second thing that sets it is when you eat. That's why there's a chapter on how to become a, a night owl or how to become an early bird. You have to combine light as a nutrient with food as a nutrient. And you shift the timing of those and magically you can not have jet lag. Or like me, you can go from being a night owl my entire life to going to bed at 10.30 naturally by messing with food and light together. So one of my companies called uh, True Dark makes these incredibly awesome looking Cyclops light glasses. And the True Dark glasses block the four types of light, not just blue light, that affect your sleep. So when you wear those, the mitochondria in your eyes, about 5% of the visual sensors in your eyes are studded with mitochondria and you never see the light because they go straight to the timing system. They believe that it's pitch dark when you wear those glasses, even though you can still see. So you can use light that way in so order cool. to say, hmm, I'm going to sleep better. I'm going to tell my, my, all of my timing system to line up. And it's fascinating what you can do there. And at the biohacking conference, we talk about light for sleep and then therapeutic light, which uh, my company True Light does. It turns out light is a signal to cause cells like collagen in the, in the skin to get thicker and stronger and to, to turn off inflammation and to turn on healing. It's fascinating what we know now that we didn't know 20 years ago. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, often people hear about not looking at screens after eight o'clock or, or whatever. This is a, a common meme, at least now. Um, but it, it, you know what that is? That, that's like going on a low-fat diet. <laughs> you know, no one has ever gone on a low-fat diet and stayed on it because it feels like crap, and then your life sucks. <laughs> and I say I did it for long enough for it to make me sick. So here's the deal. You're going to look at screens at night because that's what Netflix and chill is. That's how we communicate, especially if you only get to talk on a screen because there's yet another lockdown. So what if you looked at a screen, but you just wore some cool glasses when you looked at the screen? Well, they're not that cool, to be honest. Uh, but <laughs> when you do that, you still get to do what you want, just like you can fast without having cravings and hunger by using the fasting hacks. So it's okay to acknowledge we're going to look at screens after 8 p.m., unless you're some kind of a saint or you don't have a job. <laughs> this is I love the non-dogmatic Dave. But I think one of the things that I read in your book that was surprising to me is like, yeah, I had a general understanding that blue light suppresses melatonin, but I didn't understand that it also spiked glucose levels and contributed to insulin resistance. I was like, oh, yeah. bloody hell, I got to figure this turn out. On, turn on the bathroom lights and the kitchen lights on full brightness and stare at a screen that's not dim and yeah. do, it for, do it for five years and watch what happens. Um, and it's, it's kind of frustrating to me because you see these, you know, blue block companies, it's only one of the four colors that matters. And, and I actually wrote the patents for, uh, for true dark to put all four of the colors and the angle and all of that, because when you do it right, you actually can go to sleep and you go to sleep better. And if all you're doing is increasing melatonin, I can increase melatonin for five cents. You take a melatonin tab. That's not enough to fix your timing system. Yeah, this might be a good bridge into into vitamin D um, on the other side, 
both from a sunlight perspective and a supplement perspective. Can I get a few thoughts yeah. on vitamin D? Because it's obviously salient in the greater public health discussion right now too. Vitamin D has been my top vitamin recommendation since I started writing about health and human performance more than 10 years ago. 3,000 articles and 1,000 podcasts and videos and all that. Vitamin D has been the number one thing. And there is so much evidence that we need it and that we're deficient in it because we're indoors, because we wear clothes, and because of some shifts probably in our atmosphere. So can you get it from sunshine? No. You make a little bit of vitamin D from sunshine, but I went to Hawaii and I gave myself some photo aging of my skin and you know, no shirt, you know, short shorts for a month and my vitamin D levels are still suboptimal. But what you do is you take vitamin D supplements with vitamin K2, it's very important you do that, and then you get some sunshine. And the sunshine activates the vitamin D by turning it into vitamin D sulfate. And studies have shown for years that having adequate vitamin D levels at about 70 in the American, that's nanograms per milliliter, I don't remember, but whatever the American measures are, there's different ones in different countries. Um, what you end up with is less chance of viral and bacterial infections for all of them, very meaningfully less. In fact, to the point that if you compare the average flu shot against vitamin D, the vitamin D shows higher efficacy. And mm. some of that's because some years they don't actually get the right, um, the, <laughs> the, right the right strain. Like, oh, the, sorry, yeah. we, we guessed based looking at chickens in China or something. Yeah. So there's a lot of weakness in you know the flu shot business model. But what about the ones that you didn't get a shot for, like getting strep throat or anything else? So if you want to have a resilient immune system, vitamin D is there. In fact, I'm about to announce for um, Upgrade Labs, uh, my company, uh, and for the Upgrade Cafes, uh, vitamin D passports. And I'll be doing that also at the biohacking conference. So if you can show in the last 90 days that your vitamin D levels were above 70, I'm going to give you a free cup of coffee with your purchase. Because I want people with the most immunity to be around my employees in my community. That is nothing if not innovative. <laughs> I'll reward good behavior. So I also think we should actively discriminate against people with low vitamin D because we're more likely to get sick from them. So they should not be allowed on trains or to even go to shopping until they get a suntan and they can get enough vitamin D. It's, it's very important for our children. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> Wait, was that non-dogmatic enough for you? <laughs> it's 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 certainly if all of your other business uh, endeavors fail there's definitely a netflix comedy special that's <laughs> in in the works uh, i like it i like it um so let's just um i, I want to ask you what you're most excited about in terms of the conference in terms of interesting new ideas and people um that might be you know new um and uh, and just kind of more philosophically about um, the world of longevity, you know, it, it often gets gets highly associated with kind of the billionaire class and you know Silicon Valley techies or Jeff Bezos sending himself to Mars or something like that, and um, and so I wonder if you could 
kind of maybe dispel any of that kind of mythology that pairs longevity with, you know, kind of these notions of wealth inequality or you sure. need to be a billionaire to 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 actually live healthily. <laughs> longevity and anti-aging are fundamental desires of humans. The Buddhist techniques you're studying, anti-aging. All of Ayurveda, anti-aging. Traditional Chinese medicine, anti-aging. The conquest of the Americas, anti-aging. That's what drove it. They're looking for the fountain of youth, right? They also found <laughs> yeah. some gold and some other stuff. But seriously, we've been working on this for thousands of years. It is nothing new. What is new is that we have more ability to measure and see and analyze than we have in all of human history. So it's an amazing time. Now, people tend to, to get very upset. And one of my favorite videos online is of two monkeys in two cages. And they're trained. You put a rock in a bucket, you get a treat. So the first monkey does it, gets a cucumber. The second monkey in the cage next to him puts, puts it in his rock in the bucket and gets a grape, which is much better. And the first monkey just looks on, what? Outrage. So then he puts another rock in his bucket, gets another cucumber, takes the cucumber, throws it at the zookeeper, and just completely goes apeshit. Get, see, the, see the joke there? But there you you know, loses it. Netflix special. <laughs> and Well, we're doing that around anti-aging. Here's the deal. We had the same thing about 35 years ago. You're down in LA, you see one of the studio executives in his Mercedes 300 SD convertible with a cell phone. And it's like the size of a briefcase. He's holding it up to his head. He goes, who does that guy think he is? It's $20 an hour for him to, or a minute to talk on the phone. And we know it was $40,000 that, what a jerk. Okay, cell phones in our lifetime are a dollar a month in Africa. It is normal for a small portion of the population to pay stupid amounts of money for things that then become available for all of us once we prove it's possible. So yeah. I say good on you billionaires who are going to go spend $100 million sequencing your genome. And I've had a chance to talk to Craig Venter and ask him questions. Thanks, Craig. That was awesome. Right? And I did it for you know $1,000. I was probably one of the first 10,000 people to do it. But if we hadn't spent $100 million and what, 20 years doing it, we couldn't have been there. So don't get mad that some crazy billionaire is getting stem cells. Like I wrote books about it. I went and I experienced as much of that as I could. Get excited that you're going to get to do it on your health plan unless we actually succeed in destroying health insurance companies, in which case then you'll just get to do it sooner and cheaper. <laughs> and so last question in, in respect for time. Do you think... Do you foresee a time where this cocktail or this elixir of kind of nanotechnology and stem cell therapy can essentially make humans amortal, if not immortal? And if so, do you think that that's actually a good thing? We are going to get to the point where you can replace or repair things faster than, than they age. Yes, will you still be able to die from a freak accident or jumping off a cliff? Yeah. Is sure. uploading yourself to the internet going to make you immortal? No. Uh, so there's <laughs> you know weird science fiction scenarios. Is freezing your head going to work? I don't believe so, but I've had great discussions with my friend Aubrey de Grey, who completely believes it does, at least as a backup plan. Uh, I'm going to go with more of the Buddhist thing uh, on the reincarnation side. 
but <laughs> whatever, right? Are we going to get to the point where if something goes wrong, we can straighten it out again? Yeah, we are. It is not only a good thing, it is necessary for the survival of the planet. Because when you know you're going to be here for a couple hundred years, you will not throw the plastic in the ocean because you know you're going to have to eat it. You have to be a steward of the land, a steward of your community. And one of the things that we find is that as you age, you develop wisdom and you stop doing stupid crap and you feel a desire to give back. We call it being the village elder. And when we have yeah. enough people with enough wisdom we can have a society of people who actually have done the work and then we take care of the land. And if we don't do that, we are going to have a bunch of young wars happening over and over and over. So I want our village elders back desperately and I want thousand year old village elders. Hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful idea. I never really framed it that way. I, I like that a lot. Um, and you don't worry that it, if I were let's say kind of immortal or every part of me could be replaced and nanotechnology could send me a signal that this was failing or that was failing and then I could use stem cells to grow that back, et cetera. That, that in that immortality, I might, be, I might have so much fear of losing my life that I might end up in sort of a hermetically sealed house where I would never want to go take a chance to be run over by a bus. <laughs> that doesn't, it doesn't well, worry you. That part doesn't worry me, but I know plenty of very wealthy people who are petrified of losing their wealth and it, yeah. and it rules their life. And I also mm. know plenty of wealthy people who are feeling abundance and gratitude and a sense of obligation to use their wealth to make the world a better place. You can yeah. always choose the dark path, right? And if you've done your work and you've developed wisdom and equanimity, you say, you know what? The universe will collapse in on itself at some point. I am going to die. It is inevitable. It is a condition of being alive. So I'm going to do my best while I'm here. And the real definition of anti-aging and longevity is that you get to die at a time and by a method of your choosing. And once you make that your goal, the fear can go away. Hmm. Beautiful. Dave, thank you so much, man. I'm so grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful for all of your wisdom. I always knew you were a brilliant man. And now I know about your comedic timing. And I hope you include me in the credits on your Netflix special. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I, I look forward to... Um, to meeting you in three-dimensional space-time and, uh, and perhaps sooner than later. So um, can you just give everyone just a, a little bit more information about how they might be able to attend the, the biohacking conference because it's coming up in a few weeks? Sure. I hope that we can meet there if your schedule aligns. If not, we'll meet soon after. It is at biohackingconference.com. And it's September 17th through 19th in Orlando with thousands of people having fun and learning about biohacking together. Beautiful. Thank you, Dave Asprey. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dave Asprey. For more information about the upcoming biohacking conference, go to 
biohackingconference.com. And feel free to drop me a line any old time at jeffk at onecommune.com and leave us a review if you're so inclined on Apple Podcasts. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.